I'm Jim Wills, and this is the Art Unknown Podcast, where we feed your soul with art. Art feeds the human soul. It makes the world a better place. Find whatever stokes your inner fire and pursue it. One should always believe in what he or she can create. In our own way, every human being is kind of creating their own masterpiece of themselves. Experiment, explore. Don't be afraid to to be yourself. All right, folks, brand new episode of the podcast. We've taken a little bit of a hiatus, but we're back. We're better than ever. We've got some great artists coming up in the next few weeks and in the rest of the year. We've got some incredible, incredible talent lined up, and I'm so excited to bring this one to you that we recorded a little while ago with our latest Art Unknown Store artist, Suzanne Frazier. Check it out. Enjoy. So I'm very excited this week on the podcast uh, to talk to an artist who is a visual artist and I am really proud to say that she is a member, relatively new member of the Art Unknown store, which we'll talk about. But she found us or, or we connected through one of our fellow artists or one fellow Art Unknown store artists who actually I had interviewed for the Art Unknown podcast uh, a couple of years ago. A little bit about her before we begin. She took a career path very similar to our previous podcast guest, John Bacon, where she had Uh, a career, actually many careers, uh, before she became an artist. She has a master's in philosophy. She worked in radio. She's worked for Frontier Airlines. And then at the ripe old age of 40, she went back to school, the ripe young age, excuse me, (laughs) of 40, she went back to school to DU and took some art classes to, you know, kind of figure it out and then realized that she was really, really good. And so she got a degree from CU Boulder in a BFA 20 years later after her master's and took a turn there uh, from that point forward as an artist. And she's taught art and her her artist style, the last thing I'll say, I know it's a really long intro, her artist style is what she calls a contemplative philosophical approach to art. And I can't wait to talk about that a little bit more too and get into her art's really unique and different and I can't wait to share it with the world. I am talking with Suzanne Fraser. Suzanne, long intro, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let's get started after all of that. Before we dive into any of that, uh, you know, I always start out with an inspiration. And so I want to ask you something that inspires you, that you take with you, that you carry throughout the day or throughout your life that keeps you inspired in the arts or in life in general. My inspiration is to live kind of one day at a time and to always be present to the world around me. And I just live in a place of wonder and, and I like to live in a place of surprise. So I try to keep my expectations to a minimum and let the world unfold in front of me. Oh, wow. I love that. I love that. That's uh, the idea of like living in the present moment, being, being present for whatever happens around us. I, I think that's fantastic. As an artist, I always think artists have a gift to bring to the world, whether it's visually 
or whether they're music or some kind of experience that we have. So I love to talk about that. But you took a, a career that was totally different from art. Uh, like I said, John Bacon, our, my previous artist guest did that. He was a surgeon and orthopedic surgeon uh, before he became an artist. And you got a degree in philosophy, you said in 1969, and yes. have worked many careers. And it sounded like when we talked before we started recording that you experienced sort of lived through, if you will, what it was like to be a professional woman working in the 70s, 80s, where you had advanced in your career so far, found that you couldn't advance any further. And there was a, you even said like there was a ceiling, a glass ceiling that you have to break through and you'd either break through it or you'd go to a new career. Yes, I hit it several times. And I think most of the women who were working at the same time were experiencing the same thing at the at the radio station they would only hire me as an assistant sales secretary but then a congress passed the EEOC requirements and they had to have so many female managers so all of a sudden one day I got promoted to continuity director and I said oh do I get more money and they said no we just need to fill out this form for the government oh man but that got me into management and and little things like that kept happening uh, to at Frontier Airlines when I had my last job before the company um, stopped working, um, where I was the first woman a ramp supervisor at Stapleton Airport in Denver. And I got that position pretty much because they needed a woman to break the barrier and be in charge of 125 men. Um, the wow. men were not happy about it. I'll tell you that, but <laughs> we, we worked it out. And when um, I finally left that position, um, they made me an honorary rampy. So I guess I won them over, but oh, that's great. You know, it was a constant battle. And of course we never, ever got paid the same as men. So I am talking to you now. You're currently in Denver, Colorado. Is that correct? No, I live in Love, uh, Longmont, Colorado. Longmont, so north of Boulder. And you lived yes. in Boulder. You went, to, you went to back to school at CU Boulder uh, yes. in, in the late 80s. So it sounds like you had a career from the, from the early 70s through the late 80s, where you yes. worked for many different businesses, and you moved up as far as you could with the struggles that existed, the unfortunate struggles that existed there for women in the workplace. And I was one of the lucky women who actually got to achieve some goals and move up through a company. Most women didn't get the advantages that I had. So I was very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's great that you recognize that as, as a part of who you were, a part of the, the, the good fortune that you had. But there was a point when you decided that you were going to take some art classes. Would you talk sort of that time forward? Well, um, after I quit at Frontier Airlines, I went to Denver University for a summer semester and <laughs> the head of the department was teaching the class and he called me in and he said, why aren't you taking this class for credit? And I said, well, I already have a degree. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I changed your class to credit and I've accepted you into the art school. You're that good. And here I thought I was going to need to build a portfolio and apply to college. So I accepted the position, signed on the dotted line and took one year of classes at Denver University and then transferred up to Boulder to the University of Colorado and finally got my 
my BFA, Bachelor of Fine Arts in Studio Art in 1989, which was exactly 20 years after I got my Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And then, and how long did you live in CU? I mean, in, in, in Boulder? Well, I lived in Boulder um, for three years when I was going to CU, and then I stayed another four years and had a studio, two two different studios in Boulder, and I taught classes. And then actually I moved to Creststone, Colorado, which is up in the mountains, Mm. and built a little tiny house next door to a Carmelite monastery. And I thought... I'll teach classes and I'll probably teach a few people, but I'll mostly make art. And I also had to support myself with odd jobs in town, but I ended up teaching over a 14 year period, 125 people in a town that was about 500 people. So, you know, (laughs) it it was a wonderful experience. And then I moved back to Longmont in um, Colorado in 2008 and have had three studios in town. And I've taught a lot more people than that. And so uh, I earned my living by selling my work and teaching art classes and teaching contemplative art retreats but COVID's put an end to that for the moment let's touch on Crestone for a minute I I know Crestone Colorado um yeah yeah I've been through there many times because it is sort of the gateway to the mountains to the San Grande Cristo Mountains right there and I've hiked Challenger Point several times in the winter actually and (laughs) have attempted it three times in the winter never never quite got all the way to the summit in the winter but all but had hiked it in the summertime and i know there's a couple of 14ers and it's one of it is one of the most beautiful places in colorado when you hike into that area from creston but that said creston is also a small town you said a population of 500 what was it that made you move from boulder to creston well i have a spiritual practice in addition to my philosophy and so i was um feeling aligned with the Carmelite Monastery, where I I was their next door neighbor. I wasn't a member of the community, but I was deeply involved. And they meditated and had a a very um, mystical approach to life. And uh, so I moved there thinking I was going to live there my whole life. But unfortunately, fortunately, I had a heart attack in 07. And my quality of life deteriorated at my house was at 8,200 feet and the altitude got me. So that's why I had to leave town, but I had a wonderful 14 years and I worked for the Manitou Institute and foundation as a, um, a writer. And they were the people who gave out the land grants to the uh, various spiritual traditions. And so Mm. I was very much involved in the spiritual community and very much involved in being a board member of the Property Owners Association and on the Swatch County Planning Commission and the Creststone Land Trust. And I was very much involved in the community as well. Yeah, wow. Is it safe to say that, to try to paint the picture of Creststone for people listening who aren't familiar, is it safe to say that Creststone is sort of like 
the town, the hippie town that Boulder wishes it could be and used to be at one point in, in the past, perhaps. Like, yeah, I was in Boulder in the late 80s when it was very spiritual and I would spend time at Naropa and, and there was um, a person who brought in spiritual teachers almost every week and I would sit with them on the free lectures on Friday night. And so then moving to Crestone was a very similar atmosphere, but I must admit Boulder's changed. Oh, sure, and, sure. It's, think, you know, but I, love, I lived in Boulder for six years. And oh, from so two, 2001 to 2007 and I, the time i was in creston was in 2002 maybe 2003 that winter ah, season and then the summer yeah. after that and we were there at the same time <laughs> yeah well i passed through maybe went past your house i know creston would be like this really kind of super spiritual place kind of very so i don't want to use hippie hippie is a very positive context not a negative context but just kind of like this free free love and like painting and very artsy and I now I'm finding out that is much attributed to you. I mean, we had the ranchers, the cowboys, we had the hippies that had moved in during during the 60s. We had, you know, the Babaji Ashram. We had four Tibetan Rinpoche centers. We had a Denver, I mean, a Zen center. You know, we had the Carmelites. Um, they were Catholic. So we had all these different traditions in this wonderful mix. And when you yeah. would go to the local grocery store, Kurt's store, you would see Indian food, you would see a lot of European food, um, Japanese food, because he was <laughs> catering to the entire community. And sure. of course, he had the canned baked beans for the guys that were riding, you know, horses in the backcountry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Tell me a little bit about this monastery that you live next to. Oh, well, it no longer exists now, but okay. it was um, uh, hermit monks that lived in little cabins. And then um, following the Catholic tradition of Vespers at six in the morning, and I mean, uh, oh, whoops, Lods at six in the morning and Vespers at five in the afternoon and Compline at eight at night. They had a, a rhythm that I really enjoyed following and it really created a structure for me in my life and I still follow some of that routine now and they were um, seekers of the spiritual uh, like everybody in town and I mean again like in Boulder during the late 80s different spiritual teachers would come through Crestone and I would sit with them as well so the the draw was the Carmelites but the reason I stayed there was because of the international community Okay. You got a master's in philosophy, but you no, no, have... no, a bachelor's. You, you never, so you actually never worked in philosophy, really? No, never you... got the chance. Never but, got but the chance. Here we are, many, many years later, you've, you bring it into your art. So, Absolutely. really, the philosophical teachings that you've learned, not just when you're in college, but also throughout the year, this in living in places like Crestone with the spiritual trainings and teachings and, and practices. Tell me about your art. Again, you said it was contemplative, contemplative yes. art with a philosophical approach. Yes. After about making art for about 10 years, people would say, well, what kind of artist are you? 
And I go, well, hmm, I can't say I'm a beginner anymore. What <laughs> am I? And so I really did a, a research for about two years. I knew I meditated before um, I started painting, but meditative didn't seem like the right um, word. And okay. so then eventually I came to terms with the fact that I'm a contemplative artist. And then, then I went and looked for a definition for what that meant. And I couldn't find one. So I wrote my own definition. Do you want to hear it? Please, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so this is a compilation of many different philosophies and approaches to art making, but it's the one that works to me for me. Okay. So contemplative art, is the product of creative expression arising from the pure joy of creating, grounded in a meditative connection to the radiance and perfection of spirit known only through one's experience of being fully human. So what that means is you kind of have to be a human being on this planet first. Sure. And then hopefully you have found your connection to the radiance and perfection of spirit around you. And hopefully you have grounded your life in a meditative practice. And then after all that, you create from the pure joy of creating. And the word product is the end process. So I make art because I have to make art. And I've been told that from people um, that, you know, I just have to make art. It's just who I am. So the, the paintings are the end product, but not the objective of the work. The objective okay. of the work is to create an expression of the radiance perfection around us from being a human being on this planet. And uh, so I paint different series and so I have a Boketto series, which I showed with Lisa Calzavera in um, March of 2020, right before COVID. And, and Boketto means staring into the distance without thinking. It's a Japanese word. And then I did a, another um, series of paintings that I showed at, showed at Dark Gallery in uh, December of 2021. And it was called Spirit Light. And I'm working on a current series called Thresholds Unknown that I'm going to be exhibiting in Denver at Dark Gallery. And all of these are kind of expressions of my spiritual process, my spiritual inquiry, and my experience of being a contemplative artist. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> I know. Let's let's go back to um, the boketa. What you said it's a Japanese word, and what does boketa mean? Boketa means staring vacantly into the distance without thinking. Staring and, vaguely into the distance without thinking. And okay. so that's kind of my experience of meditation. You know, you're just kind of being present in the environment that you're in. Yeah. So the paintings that came out of that was that the manifestation of what you sort of saw in your mind's eye when you were staring into the nothingness no i don't see anything i feel okay. things 
I operate, you know, there's three types of people, auditory, visual, and kinesthetic. Mm -hmm, and I'm one sure. of those weird ones that are kinesthetic and I operate out of how it feels. Okay. So how, so, does, that, how does that translate to the, to the canvas, to the image? Well, see. I just paint my feelings and I let the colors, I, well, color is the bottom line on my work. Okay. And, and so if I do make an image, I, it's because I need to hang the colors on the image and the uh, colors are more important than the image, but um, I'm expressing a feeling that is nonverbal, okay. but it apparently can appear visually. So I've had people who, well, I actually had a Richard Baker Roshi look at the Boketo series and uh, when it was on display and he, and he's a teacher following Suzuki Roshi. Okay. And he looked at my work and he said, yep, yep, yep. I think you got it. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but um, he kind of acknowledged that. I had stared vacantly into the distance. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's cool. Without thinking, so I feel it, I feel somewhat confident from the response from several spiritual peoples who have responded to my work. Oh, that's fantastic! That's fantastic. What is the medium that you use? Because your work has a lot of texture. Um, it's just oil paint. So okay. on the Boketo series, I would take a kind of mix a gray color in my in my garage and just slop the paint on and make all this texture. And then it would take about nine months for it to dry. And after it wow. stopped smelling, I would take it into the studio and then the image and the colors would appear out of the texture. I kind of let the texture guide me. Yeah. So it was uh, the Boketa series was about a three year process. You know, artists just don't whip these things out. <laughs> well, a lot of them do, but not people like me. You know, sure, you sure, don't sure, whip sure. This stuff out. It's almost like giving birth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to talk a little bit about how you went from being like, did you have a period of, of quote unquote, starving artist? How did you go from being like working in a professional career to, and transitioning to full time making a living as an artist? Was moving to Crestone part of that because you could live in Crestone more cheaply than you could in Boulder, things like that. So that's, I guess, if you wouldn't mind talking about that journey. Well, um, fortunately, I had worked in industries and radio and airlines that were 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I saved my money because I didn't have time to go on vacation. <laughs> so I, I had some money. And also, I, the transition, when I uh, took that first summer school art class, I was just like, whoa. Where have I been? What have I been doing? I, this is who I really am. And I really, I call it dancing. Uh, painting is like dancing. You know, you just get into it and, and you get swept away. And yeah. um, I, I have capabilities, you know, from my previous skills and jobs uh, to do other things. But if I could paint all day in my studio, I would. And it's just... It just became um, part of who I am. 
And um, I, I, <laughs> I once went to Santa Fe with my portfolio and, and I was in an art gallery that I knew my art would not fit in. And the owner came up to me and said, oh, well, or what are you here for? And I said, oh, I'm looking at your art, but I'll never fit in. Um, I don't do realistic art. And she said, well, let me look at your portfolio. And she did. And she looked at me. It's a total stranger now. Doesn't even know who I am. She looked at me and she said, I could just see through your art that whether you sell or not, you're going to have to make art. And, <laughs> and, and, and that kind, you know, it's these out of the blue feedback that yeah. you get from people that just reinforce out of the blue that you're on the right path. And, and I've, I've always remembered that woman's words because, you know, if I don't paint after three or four days, my fingers start to itch. I mean, <laughs> I'm rubbing my hands and I just got to get into the studio. So sure, it's sure. just kind of a fact of life. I, and it, like my art, it's hard to explain. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a starving artist period? when you transitioned or did you keep your full-time career as you created art? Was there a hard, solid trend? Like, did you quit one and start the other immediately? How was that? How did that go? Oh, well, no, I, I was a starving artist in art school. You were. And, okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I lived on an apartment on the Hill in Boulder and, yeah, yeah. um, I, I didn't work during that period. Then I started, um, you know, working and, and, 1990 but as an artist and and I was really surprised I've, I've made good money from teaching classes and uh, doing the, I, I would do um, twice a year minimum a spiritual journey workshops I, okay. I did twice a year up at the Abbey of St. Walburga in um, Virginia Dale Colorado mm. and then I taught for a while at the Dairy Center for the Arts yeah um, as a, a person who was just renting the space and running my own workshops. And then when I moved to Crestone, I had some odd jobs. <laughs> okay. So that's, I appreciate you sharing that because like when you graduated from college with that, with that BFA, did you have odd jobs then as well as you were becoming your art career or did you dive right into, I can live off my art or you had the savings that you're still living off of? I had the savings I was still living off of. And okay. I've always been a person who didn't live extravagantly. It's just part of who I am. Sure. You ask any artist and they'll scrounge around and figure out a way to make money. I Well, I also had a knitting business. I um, made baby hats oh, and, right. wow. and did craft shows. Knitting was part of my meditation. I went for seven years without watching television. Wow. So, yeah. Congratulations. Was That's fantastic. I would come up, you know, to the city to visit friends and I would watch television and I, I couldn't get the jokes. I wasn't in the culture. <laughs> and, and so I would sit and knit and, and then I would sell baby hats and baby sweaters and dog sweaters. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's, so that's I, and I made good money doing that. So, you know, it was a combination of having a real job, the knitting job, the workshops, the art classes, and then actually selling your art. Sure. And sure. I, I've made over 500 pieces of art in the last 30 years and I've sold 250 pieces. So I'm, I'm, wow. I'm 
I have people who collect me, so I'm grateful for their love of my art. It helps. How about now something that I've started asking, especially visual artists, is the pricing. You have a long career in art, a very uh, accomplished career in art, and I really appreciate you sharing your art with us, and I can't wait to talk about you being on the, the store. But I want to talk about, if you will, if you can remember back then, the pricing of your art when you started selling artwork. Now, where we're talking, you have two large canvases behind you. Did you always no. paint large, large pieces or, or did you start smaller? Um, I, right now, I'm painting very large pieces. Um, your, your size of your canvases is based on the size of your studio <laughs> and also your studio door. You can only paint canvases that go through your studio door. Okay or that you can move around in your car. Like I painted one 60 by 48 inch and it fit through my studio door, but not in my car. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I could afford a, a, a warehouse instead of where I am, um, I would paint 10 foot by 10 foot paintings, but yeah, I don't yeah. have the ability to do that right now. Sure. Maybe someday. But I paint uh, from 12 inch by 12 inch up to 48 by 36 right now because okay. of those limitations. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now, how did you decide about the pricing when you first started selling your artwork? What did you use to decide, hey, this is how much I'm going to sell this for? Oh, my gosh. You know, when artists get together, that's what they all talk about. <laughs> of course. Because it's really a crapshoot. I mean, you could paint a big painting that was really pretty okay. And you could paint a magnificent small painting. And the magnificent small painting is worth more money than the big one. But in the art world and, and, and how commerce works these days, it's by size. Yeah, yeah. So you may have a magnificent small painting and... And you have to price it lower than your bigger painting because people won't understand why it's priced more. Right. That's and, an interesting and, perspective. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's the standard thing where you take your most successful painting and you figure out your price per square inch. And then you multiply the square inch of your next painting by the price per square inch. But, you know, then you have all these other things where you've got you know, commission that you have to pay to a gallery. Yeah. So you have to tack on extra money. So if you buy the art directly from me, from my art studio, I'll tell you the gallery price, but I'll sell it to you without the commission costs. And, you know, you just get a body of work together and you just kind of decide what it's worth to you. I mean, some people will paint a painting and will put a heavy price on it. And if anybody buys it, they're glad it's got, it'll got, you know, it went, but they really don't want to sell it. And right, other right. paintings, you put lower prices. But what I have noticed, and I really do believe this from several experiences, that each painting has an owner. You're just waiting for them to show up. <laughs> I love that. Um, I have experienced people walking into my studio and going, oh, there it is. And buying it. And they didn't care what price. Yeah. So yeah. I have one interesting one, which most artists will enjoy this story. I had a woman who said, I'm looking for a painting 
that will go over my bedside table and match my bedspread. And do you have anything like that? And I want a Madonna and child. And out of, I, I, I don't paint Madonna and child, but I had an oil pastel drawing that I had done with my art class and it had sh kind of shown up and it was in colors that I never use. Mm. And um, I had it framed in my art studio and she walked into my studio and said, there it is. It'll fit over the bedside table and it matches my bedspread. <laughs> yeah, so, it's perfect. Go figure. Yeah, yeah. So I've had experiences like that where people have walked in and said, there's my painting. That's fantastic. So, you know, I, the, the pricing thing will always be a question. I've worked with a gallery in Denver and she said, okay, this is what I can sell these pieces for. Do you want to sell them at that price? You okay. know, she just knew what the market held for the type of work I was making. And sometimes with dear friends, I'll say, oh, make me an offer and I'll see if I accept it. And one time a friend offered me $500 for a 12 inch by 12 inch painting. And I said, nope, it's only worth 250. <laughs> <laughs> That's and great. I, I wouldn't take the 500 because I, I, I wouldn't have been able to sleep at night, you know? Oh, that's great. There you go. Ethics. I like that. <laughs> good, a good moral compass as well. Yeah, I, you know, it's kind of a again a, a gut thing, you know. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, sure. come on, art is not logical. <laughs> uh, absolutely agree with that, one hundred percent. Speaking about not logical, I guess there is a logical progression, but the, this is my my attempt at a segue into you joined the Art Unknown store. Really thrilled about that. You came through Lisa Calzavera. Is that yes. how? She said, hey, this is somebody that I'm working with. No, she actually handed me a, a flyer and said, my art is on this uh, clothing line. Take a look. And I went, whoa, how'd you do that? How do I get in touch with them? You know, I was very impressed with your product line and impressed with how you had used her images on your clothing. And it was kind of like, oh, I think my art would look good on that clothing. And, and so it was very, um, I mean, she just handed me a piece of paper and it was like, <laughs> boom. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. That's fan fantastic. And your art looks really, really cool. I, one thing that I really like about your art and art like that, we only have, we don't have a lot of huge texture. Having that extra texture in your art makes the clothing have a dimensionality to it it kind of has this whole 3d effect because it's having that 2d surface on clothing that moves around with the texture. So I'm very excited for your art. I think it's really, really cool. The other thing that I really appreciate is you're a more experienced artist. Um, anybody knows that you've been around the block a little bit, if we may say. Oh, definitely. I just had a landmark birthday. I'm 75 years old. Oh, congratulations. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Good for you. That said, a lot of artists, especially, and I don't, I know this sounds very, maybe this sounds very ageist and I shouldn't say it this way, but a lot of more professional artists that I have spoken to still have the idea of my art belongs on the wall, who haven't dove into the idea of putting art on clothing or putting art on other products. And I'm wondering if you had done that in the past, if you did any of that sort of thing when you lived in 
Crestone? And if not, why did you decide that you thought it was something that resonated with you? I haven't done it. And I don't really know why it resonated, but it just, you know, it's one of those things, whoa, my art will look good on this. And, um, and Lisa spoke very highly of you. You know, I checked you out. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and you were reputable because, you know, artists are always kind of getting scammed sometimes. Sure, sure. And so, no, I, I, I really don't want to go commercial with my yeah. art. Yeah. In fact, I one time uh, made, you know, a canvas copy of one piece of art and I thought, no. I don't like that because when I sell a piece of art to a collector, it's their art and they only have the only copy. So but you don't I, do reproductions? No, I do not do reproductions because I think it's cheating my collectors. Mm. And But the art and how you used it on the uh, clothing, it, it you couldn't put it. Ne- I mean, you can put it next to the painting and say, oh, yeah, but it's not. I don't feel like I'm cheating my collectors. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate that. Jan Race and I decided like within this store, doing this store that like it was something that I've always wanted to have as a way of giving back with. the Because I used to have the Art Crave magazine and then just like I've always thought of some sort of like commerce thing would be interesting to have. How can I showcase that the best? with artists. And I didn't want to have just a marketplace of like, oh, you can sell your pieces through my portal or, you know, like something, I wanted something different. And so when we came up with the creation last year, this idea last year, I was very excited that Lisa said yes, because her art I, is really, really cool as well. Her clothing is amazing. She's had yes. a lot of great success on the store, which was great to, for us, early boost up to us, which I really, really appreciate. Plus then she turned us on, she turned you on to us we knew doing this, being artists ourselves, that we wanted to have clothing that, and we were like, okay, once we started to explore this, this whole idea of this uh, sort of slow fashion, the clothing doesn't exist until it's actually made. So there's all these sort of kind of green practices, if you will, around it. And we've tried to work with a company that's, that makes our clothes that's very conscious about that. And we try to use, I mean, we use recycled fabrics. We try to be very... And I didn't know if that would resonate with people. If people would be like, oh, who cares? Like, so what? Like, you know what I mean? Or if people go, oh, that's another selling point. Uh, I, so that long drawn out statement leads to the question of, does that make a difference to you at all? Or did you like just the idea of it being on clothing? Um, no, it made a huge difference because I just didn't want to be another piece of cheap clothing. Um, and your philosophy matches my ecological philosophy and, and my stance uh, for the environment. And um, I live very sustainably as a result of that. I try to touch the earth lightly. And, uh, and the images I sent you were more earth oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, and I particularly chose those options for you to choose for your clothing line because they were more earth centered and nature centered. And I thought they would match your philosophy of doing um, clothing that isn't going to harm the, the earth. Oh, that's and great. I, and I, I especially love the Canyon entrance with the, the boulders. Like you can just see it and, you know, 
having been to Rocky Mountain National Park, I don't know what area of that inspired you for the painting, but it just like I can see it. You know what I mean? I'm like, well, I, I'm sure if there's been places I've been that, that you can almost reach out and feel the texture of the rock. It's such a beautiful piece. Well, thank um, you. It, it took me about 18 months to paint. And wow. it's really the culmination of being in Colorado since 1972. And, you know, hiking, skiing, rafting, oh, you name it. I've been all over the mountains and uh, various parts of the state. And, and it's, so it's kind of like my cumulative summary of a life experience i had yeah oh that's fantastic the, the teaching being, being a teacher they, they often say the best way to know that you that you actually know something is to teach it and in teaching art are you teaching this sort of this style this this complicative com, i can't say contemplative it. <laughs> contemplative style to to your students? yes Yes, I do. I mean, you can't really teach it, but you can set up the space and the attitude and see if it shows up. And so what I do, my standard teaching format is to teach a class. I I have this notebook of over 100 classes that I've put together, you know, and I showed them pictures of artists. I wish we could just be in a museum and see them live. And then prior to making the art, whether it's an oil pastel drawing workshop or if it's a private oil painting class, we meditate. So I have a short little meditation and I can share it with you. I light a little incense, very mild incense, Mm. um, so that your nose will know it's time to make art because your olfactory nerve has a great memory. You know, if I say popcorn, you know, the theater and the movie. And so um, we burn the same incense and then we sit and close our eyes and sit up straight in a chair with our feet flat on the floor. And I have them breathe deeply and wiggle their toes because that is a way of bringing yourself back into your body. So you're well grounded. And so always somebody taught me to wiggle my toes before I gave speeches. <laughs> That's a and, great idea. Yeah. And, and so I always, when I was giving speeches to hundred people, I would wiggle my toes and it just seemed to bring me in a place of calm. So I use that in the art classes now. And then the next thing we do is take a great deep breath and yawn and on the exhale, drop our shoulders. Cause most people, ah. yeah, all <laughs> the tension in their jaws. So okay. we want to remove the tension and then we take another nice deep breath. And on the exhale, we move our shoulders and our neck and then I have them move their elbows and their wrists and their fingertips because I want their heart centered energy to move down their arms to their heart. Okay. And that finally we just take a nice deep breath and sit quietly for a while and kind of make a space around us where, you know, there's a separation between the talking and arriving at class and, and starting painting or drawing. How long do you do you sit in meditation with the students? Well, that little meditation takes maybe seven to 10 minutes. 
Okay. But then as my students spend more time with me, we spend a little more time just sitting at the end of the meditation. Mm. And they kind of, when a first uh, student starts with me, oh, they can't sit still. But over time, and I have students, I have one student who's been with me for eight years. Uh, but we sit longer and longer as the, as the student gets more comfortable with uh, the process. Sure. As you, as you know, sitting on a pillow, you don't get it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so true. My, my wife and I now meditate every day, 95, 8% of the time, <laughs> you know, miss a day here and there, but uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's just, um, I'm having the space in my life where I can actually take the time to have those kind of moments of contemplation but yeah. Oh, and, and to finish up. So after we meditate, then I play music. Okay. Uh, because music keeps your left brain busy and sure. out of the, and kind of, it's like babysitting, you know, so your right brain, I'm, I'm really manipulating the atmosphere, but it works. Your right brain has more of a chance to get involved in the painting process. And that's the part of the process where I want people to use, you know, we're all whole brained, of course, but yeah, to yeah. use those functions of the right brain that are nonverbal and are more expressive and so we play nonverbal music like, you know, Bach is great for creativity. Mm. That rhythm of the Bach, the rhythm that Bach creates is just, you know, like the cello suites. We listen to that. We okay. listen to Bach for creativity, cello right. suites. Okay. What else? Well, there's a, what is it? Pandora has a Renaissance music. Okay. Um, station and that's great for creativity because it it has a little more bounce to it than the cello suites oh uh, i have a friend peter cater who plays music he's a pianist and and a two-time grammy winner um, oh. and we listen to his station okay and classical music baroque music nothing that you can sing along with because then that gets your left brain more active and involved right, right. no lyrics and, no and words yeah. What, and then, what about uh, chanting music? Is that, is that also distracting too? Uh, like, no, like I have mantras student, and things like that. Does that. I have one student that uh, listens to, uh, uh, you know, Hindu chanting and it's yeah. very lovely, you know? Yeah. So um, we play music that the student likes to listen to. And then the, the, I paint with the student and cause our, my classes are three hours. So oh, the okay. first hour yeah. I teach and then we paint together and then, you know, about synergy in a room. Sure. Sure. So the synergy gets going and I'm painting and they're painting and I'm available. So if they have any questions, I stop painting and go over and help them. It's not like, you know, I'm in the zone and totally ignore them. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so I want to ask you this. I hope that you're not offended by it, but uh, you have lived in Colorado for many years in both Boulder in the eighties and uh, the small little town of Crestone in the mountains in the Colorado Plateau. Uh, Colorado is weed friendly. Were uh, weed or psilocybin or other drugs involved in your artistic practice at all or, or not, not a part? It's not a part. Um, okay. I don't need those things. I go there anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. And that, it sounds like your meditative practice is the replacement for what some other people use, use these drugs for. You, you yeah. get into it a different well, way. To, in, 
to quote Clint, was it Clinton who said, yes, I've inhaled? Yeah, I've inhaled. <laughs> um, it, you know, I was in college in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, um, of course. But I, I, I don't feel the need. I can go into that expanded space. Oh, mix colors for about 15 minutes and I'm gone. Wow. Okay. You yeah. know, but that's, you know, it's turned, I mean, I've been doing it for 30 years and I didn't do it that fast when I was younger, Took sure. you know, maybe an hour of painting before I would find the space, but now click right in. Right in. That's um, awesome. I guess that's the joy of painting for so long. <laughs> <laughs> I want to finish up the, uh, the financial aspect. If we can, if you don't mind sharing the pieces behind you, they're both the same size pieces or is one a little bigger? Now they're the same size. Same size. Now, do you mind sharing the price of those pieces? My gallery price was 4,000. Okay. 4,000 in the 36 by 36. So 36 this is, by 36. This is what you're charging yeah. for in your, in your career right now. And I sell them to my friends for 3,500. Okay. Do, and do you, you do know. commissions at all or, or. Yes. No? I have done commissions. Yeah. Okay. Um, not a lot. Cause I don't know why, uh, <laughs> but I have done commissions in the past and, and I've had people collect my work and then say, could you do a piece like that one? But I want it a different size. So it'll fit in a certain place in my sure. living room. And I'll say, well, I can do something similar, but I can't, you know, there's no way I can do something twice. Yeah. 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 I think it'd be interesting if you had a client and took them through the meditative practice with you, like, oh. and then they, have you ever done that before? That would be really interesting. And then you painted your, your feelings. No, I have never done. Well, um, I did once have this experience. I had a, a student who was a, a Qigong Taoist person. Okay. And she did some energy work on me. And, and then afterwards I painted a picture mm. and then I, I did it several times with her and that's not like any of my other work. <laughs> interesting. interesting. came out of the energy session. Sure. You know, so I I've done it that way. I have, but most of my collectors meditate on their own. <laughs> that's why <laughs> that my work resonates with them. Absolutely. Now you mentioned collectors yeah. several times. How how important is, are the collectors to you? Yeah, they're very important. They have helped me through some, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have people show up and buy several paintings and then come by and see what I'm working on and buy paintings that are wet off the easel almost you yeah. know i say well you can pick them up in about three or four months after they dry <laughs> um, and they've shown up it's, i've been very fortunate they've shown up when i really needed the money and wow. very interesting i sold three large paintings uh, in 2020 from people who found me on the internet and it really got me through uh covid now i was going to ask about about COVID, how COVID affected you, uh, because you're a gallery artist. We talked about at the beginning, or I don't even know if I had an introduction, it was so long, but, but that you are a founding member of, of Dark Gallery in Boulder, yes. Colorado. And no, 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 no. It's in on Santa Fe Drive in Denver. 
I'm sorry, Santa Fe Drive in Denver. My apologies, Santa Fe Drive in Denver. And did you guys open that gallery before COVID? And then when, when did you open the gallery initially? We opened the gallery August 1st of 2019. Okay, so only and a few months before. Actually. A few months before. And the Friday night before Denver shut down the following Wednesday night, which was the day after St. Patty's Day, Lisa Calzavera and I had a first Friday event where 958 people went through the studio because we had people counting. Mm -hmm. And I talked to most of those people. And of course, no one was wearing a mask. Nobody even knew about, I mean, COVID hadn't really become an issue. Sure. And then, you know, the next Wednesday, everybody's wearing masks and everything's shut down. And but a dark gallery, uh, what we did is we Lisa and I took our work out of the gallery. We moved one movable wall and everybody brought in one piece of art. And we had a look through the front door art show. <laughs> and so we called it, you know, a walk by art show. So we were showing work, even though the gallery wasn't open. And then after you could open your space up to 10 people at a time, well, we never got more than 10 people in the gallery, except on first Fridays. Sure. Um, so we opened the gallery to a limited number of people, but, and we did sell work out of it. And then we've, you know, we, we've made it through COVID and we're still going. Well, good and, for you. Did you, now, were you financially, did, like, did sales like cut off? Like how, how? important was it for you at the time to have that gallery as a physical space in addition to any sort of online presence? Well, it was important. I, I didn't have another solo show um, again until December 20 and 21, because we get one show a year. Okay. And the one show I had with Lisa got cut short. But I had these people who found me online and came to my art studio wearing their masks. And, uh, uh, and I actually sold uh, three large pieces. And then I quarantined myself after talking to the 958 people <laughs> and, uh, for about three weeks. You know, my neighbors went to the grocery store for me. And, uh, but then after about another month, my art students started calling me up and saying, could we have art class? I promised to wear my mask <laughs> and I teach, I, I'm teaching one-on-one. -on -one. I had to cancel my group workshops. Okay. And so I've, I've been working steadily since, um, oh gosh, I think it was um, May of 2020 with my art students coming back and, and, oh, good. You know, good. and it's a big enough studio. So we're not on top of each other, but we're still taking precautions. Good, good, good. So, so you were affected, but you, like you said, you made it through the gallery still going and you guys are doing classes again and uh, ha having shows again. Let's talk a little bit deeper about art. Now you've got a long career in art and I always ask, I always try to ask some deep questions to my artists. Oh, to good. Get their, get their thoughts and opinions. <laughs> One of my favorites is why should we care about art? Oh, yeah, that goes along with what is art. Um, I think, well, you know, you've read a lot about art. I think a lot of artists are mystics. 
And I, even if they don't know it and, and they're painting the soul of their culture. I mean, there's production artists and, and artists who are painting to sell, but I'm talking about the artists that are, are having, are making art from the center of their beingness. Yeah. And, and so um, I think that, uh, the culture needs art. And I think we're living in a culture right now that doesn't appreciate art except for small segments of the population. And, but, you know, these EFTs, I'm hoping maybe that will carry art into another, you know, opportunity. And, mm. and oh, NFT, the NFT. Yeah. Is that what they are? I, NFT. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Non-fungible oh, tokens. I, 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 that's my dyslexia coming up. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite all right. So, but, so, uh, so let me ask you about that. Being an artist who came from an era before, I mean, we even had computers too. Now we live in a place where art is not only art being sold online, but digital art is being sold online for ridiculous sums of money. What is your thought about that since you brought up NFT? Oh, I think it's a game. I mean, a lot of art that is sold at high prices is not bought because of the art. It's got bought because it's an investment. Sure. And, and the people have been sold this idea that if they buy the art, they can resell it at a higher price later on down the road. And I don't want those people collecting my art. I want people who love the personal expression. And I actually declined years ago when I was first starting out. Um, I, I refused to sell a piece of art to a man because he, he just told me, well, I'm going to buy this because you're going to be famous someday. And I said, I don't, I don't, I'm sorry. My child is not moving to your house. And, and I, I'm, I can be rather stubborn. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Interesting that you said my child, because there's another artist who talked about like, uh, each piece is like a child and you're releasing it out into the world. I think yes. Pretty fabulous. I mean, I never married. I'm single. I've done my entire life on my own. I'm very proud of that as an independent woman. And Congrats, um, woo! let's take a moment. Yeah. yeah. Good for you. Good for you. That's yes. Great. I made it this far. <laughs> so far, so good. I've supported myself and I've uh, had a very good life, but yes, these are my children and yeah. I give birth to them and they are part of me and they have a part of me inside them. So I just don't give my children away and I don't give them to just anybody. I, 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 they don't know it, but my collectors, I'm interviewing them to see if they, you know, are going to be good custodians. If, of my if kids. they're wor worthy, worthy of your work. That's fantastic. I think it was, uh, who was it? Um, Mark Rothko. Uh, there's <laughs> a story about him having paintings that were going to be put into maybe like the four seasons or some restaurant in New York. And they didn't yes. tell him it was a restaurant until after they had already purchased the paintings. And he was like, nope, my, my work doesn't belong in a restaurant. And torque yes. Jack and was like, give them back. <laughs> he took them all back and gave the money back and said, nope, I don't want people not looking at my work and eating instead. Yes. And I mean, you know, we're few and far between, but I'm happy to be in that camp. Sure, 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 sure. So... As an artist and with having a having a long career in art, what do you uh, what do you want to see like sort of your legacy in the art world be? 
Well, I'd like to be a woman in a museum. Okay. You know? okay. Uh, there are very few of us. I don't know if you knew about the Gorilla Girls in the late 80s. No, but, no. You know, one of the advantages of being a woman artist in the 80s was you'll never be famous. Uh, so you can make any kind of art you want. <laughs> okay. But I hope that these um, paintings survive my lifespan. Um, they were painted with a lot of heart and a lot of feeling and, and, and a lot of joy. And I, I hope that when I die, that people will appreciate them. You know, the big joke among artists is we'll be worth a lot more money when, after we're dead. <laughs> sure. Of course. Of course. So I would, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm creating an expression that people appreciate. Well, you know, and it's, it's funny because it's, it really is so few artists who have lived through time. You know what I mean? Like whose work is still recognized. So I guess that leads me into how important is it is, or do you track your artwork? Do you have, do you go through sort of like, I don't know what it's called, the legal sort of like cert certification of art authenticity or anything like that for your artwork? Or? No, I sign uh, the back of the canvas okay. with my signature and the year and uh, the name of the painting. And so, you know, even if the canvas is taken off the stretcher, it's my signature. I don't sign the front of my work. Because I think it's, I, I just can't be Picasso and Van Gogh, sorry. Um, and, <laughs> and these uh, are very clean, that's for sure. And I, uh, some of my art teacher at, at CU gave me some advice. She said, keep a track from the very beginning of who you sell your art to. And so I actually know where all my art is. Mm. Pretty much. There's a couple of auctions that I donated to that I don't know the person who bought it, sure, but sure. I know where those 250 pieces. And, and so I have a list with the name of the person in the year they bought it. And, and that, um, that is a development of your, of your collector's list, right? Yeah. Those mm. people, the, your collectors came out of that list because you kept track and you found, you yes. found the people who wanted to own more of your work and, and can that resonated with your work. So that's, yeah, I think that's an have, important piece of advice. I have quite a few people who have bought more than one, and and I and I love it. I love it because the children are together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I used to ask this question. I want to flip it on its head a little bit. I used to ask like, "Oh, what would you ask? What piece of advice would you give to your twenty-year-old self, or whatever?" And I don't want to do that. What I want to say is, project yourself forward. We we've never met in person, but you seem like you're quite a healthy woman you'll live for a long time let's say you live another 20 years or 30 years and you're on your end of your life you're not painting anymore and you're kind of on your deathbed and you now have this additional 30 years of wisdom what would that what would that Suzanne Fraser 30 years from now tell yourself today uh, keep painting uh <laughs> actually I just had a dear dear friend who was 91 years old and she painted up until the last three months of her life. Oh, wow. And, and George O'Keefe, you know, kept making art, even though she lost her eyesight. So those are my role models. Uh, so the wisdom, uh, I would tell myself, I, I, I keep painting. 
uh, relax and enjoy the ride. <laughs> that also sounds like adv- sage advice that you would give maybe to a younger person as well. But but to have that come from your older self, I think it sounds like you're sort of already there because you're already you you yeah. gave that advice, you know. Well, you know, I was gifted with a very disastrous event in my life at when I was a junior in college. So, I mean, a junior in high school at the age of what, um, 16, I think, or 17, my dear friend died of heart disease. Mm. And the gift of that deep grief was that you have to live every single day to the fullest because you don't know when you're going to leave. And I have lived my entire life with that gift from my friend. Wow. Um, So every day... You know, if it's just one thing, I, I, if you knew me, you would know that I don't sit around and watch the television. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you went how many years without, without watching TV? Seven years, you said. I think that's fantastic. Well, you know, in Colorado, you have to watch the weather report. <laughs> yeah, of course, especially this time of year, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other pieces of advice that you want to you share? had one more question for me and I interrupted you uh no I think that was it maybe uh, <laughs> any other advice that you'd like to share as we as we begin to wrap up I don't know oh Come my with God. the wealth of wisdom <laughs> <laughs> no just live each day to the fullest and I guess the uh, the one piece of wisdom I would advise is to do one creative thing every day mm. whether it's art or cooking or gardening or dancing in, you know, in your bedroom, do just do one creative thing a day. That's fantastic. I really appreciate that. I think, you know, in the modern world, we don't focus enough on being creative, on creativity and sharing. We all have those creative gifts inside of us. I, I love that. And I encourage that. I second that, I guess to do something creative every day, no matter how big, how small. I also liked how you put it, like washing the dishes can be a creative experience of, you know, cleaning the floor. If we're going to do those things, find some creativity in it. Well, Suzanne Fraser, I really appreciate you being on the podcast and talking about your journey in the art and sharing some of your wisdom with the art. And so excited. You've been on the store now for for a month or so, a couple of months. And we've got a lot coming up for, for this upcoming year with the Art Unknown store. Um, I don't usually spend a lot of time on the podcast sort of pimping it out, if you will, or talking about it, but I'm just really excited for this opportunity to continue to grow the store in a way to give back to artists. And so I'm really grateful for artists like yourself and for Lisa. Well, Suzanne, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. You're a joy to talk to. Uh, I, I love your artwork. One of the things I really love about your artwork is it's very different, but I, your art is one of the unique, the more unique types of art in the store. So I really appreciate that. I'm not just saying that. <laughs> I, I love your artwork and I, and I love uh, the story and the spirit that you put into your work. So hopefully that'll continue to resonate. Well, and, and if you come back to Colorado, we'll have to visit in person. Absolutely. I will definitely let you know. Uh, I used to spend a lot of time in Longmont when I lived in Boulder, so. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were a delight to talk to. I enjoyed your questions. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much.
All right. Okay. Bye bye. As you guys have heard, Susan Fraser is one of the newest artists on the Art Unknown store, and her work is absolutely fantastic. It is full of texture and full of life, and I want you guys to go check it out. That's artunknownstore.com. And of course, podcast listeners get 10% off any purchase. Just use the code AUPODCAST10 when you check out. That's austore.com with a discount code AUPODCAST10. The music for this episode of the podcast is from International Grammy Award-winning pianist Peter Cater. The song is entitled From My Heart from his 2020 album of the same name. We look forward to having Peter on a future episode of the podcast, but until then, check out his compositions wherever you listen to your music. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Unknown podcast. I am host and producer Jim Wills, and it has been an absolute pleasure to bring this episode your way. Now, get on out there, be creative, remember to take care of one another, and as always, feed your soul with art. Mm-hmm.